Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Rachel Myro in Fermina Kim. On a day when most of us are focused on anthropomorphic politics in the United States, we want to tip your chin up and encourage you to think about what's out there beyond our Earth's atmosphere, beyond this delicate blue marble roiled by toxic terrestrial life forms. If, like me, you've ever wondered if humans are alone in the universe, if, like our esteemed panel of experts today, you've ever seriously searched for for signs of intelligent extraterrestrial life out there, you are in for a treat. Stay with us. We cover the universe after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in, in for Mina Kim. When I was a little child, I dreamt of being contacted by aliens. You too? Perhaps you noticed, like we did here at Forum, that NASA has just launched a nine-month study of Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, or UAP. Yes, that includes unidentified flight objects, or UFOs, but talk to scientists today and they'll tell you the image you're visualizing right now a flying saucer and little green creatures is improbable at best. What does the search for extraterrestrial life look like today? We've brought together a bevy of brainiacs to discuss the age-old question of children everywhere. Are we alone in the universe? Joining us now are G. Scott Hubbard, former director of the NASA Ames Research Center and author of Exploring Mars, Chronicles from a Decade of Discovery. Thank you for being here. Glad to be here. And also Marina Corrin, staff writer at The Atlantic. She covers space for the magazine. Yeah, thanks for having me. Marina, why don't we have you start? Tell us about the NASA Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Study Committee. What is its mandate? Right. So this is a committee that NASA announced this summer that it would form. And just recently, uh, the agency released um, some more information about who's going to be on the committee, what they're going to be looking at. And the purpose of this committee is to basically conduct a nine-month study into um, the search for and, and the way we think about UAPs, uh, this committee is going to examine existing data on these objects and brainstorm new ways to collect uh, future data. And all this work, NASA said, will be done from a science perspective. And I'm using air quotes that you can't see because it's a little bit vague on what exactly that means, because for a long time, NASA has really stayed away from 
um, UFOs or UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena, however you want to call it. It was more focused on finding life elsewhere in the solar system. So this is a pretty new venture for NASA. Scott, I understand you've read the unclassified version of the report first issued in June of last year. Given your experience, what what struck you reading it? Well, this is a report that came from the director of national intelligence. And it was surprising to me, first of all, because they were talking about it and encouraging other reports. Uh, Many listeners probably remember Close Encounters of the Third Kind and uh, Air pilot uh, says that he's seen something, and the controller on the ground says, oh, do you want to report that? Uh, no, we, we don't want to report that. And that's the way it's been for many years. So this report, uh, which looked at cases from 2004 to 2021, was a breakthrough in the government, in this case the intelligence arm, uh, looking for any kind of data, you know, real uh, solid evidence that there was something out there that couldn't be identified. You know, my, my general impression watching the headlines uh, over the years, as opposed to Hollywood movies, which I've also watched, but <laughs> or TV streamers, is, is that most of the time humans are, are misidentifying what they're looking at. They're saying, wow, this is not something, this is not phenomena that's familiar to me. Um, I'm going to go straight to the hypothesis that that's an alien life form or signs of alien life forms uh, operating here in in Earth's atmosphere. Uh, Am I correct in thinking that? I think a lot of people want to do that. It's very uh, romantic and controversial. But the report that was issued a year and a half ago looked at 144 cases, um, many near military bases or military operations, And these cases were captured not on grandma's brownie box camera, but on very sophisticated sensors on board an F-18. So this is not uh, just a uh, iPhone picture. Of those 144 cases, 143 are still unidentified. The intelligence folks say, well, there's five possible explanations. Airborne clutter, atmospheric phenomena, some government test program, foreign adversaries, or the all-famous other. Uh, And, you know, the fact that NASA has now picked this up to look at it even more closely, I think, is an indication uh, that the government is taking it seriously, and apparently they want to know more about it. Marisa, uh, Marina, rather, uh, does this describe what you understand uh, NASA is doing here? Because I I guess initially, uh, house hearings brought attention to UFOs, uh, but but it's credible scientists who, who are looking at the data now and trying to determine what's going on, right? Right. And the reason that those House hearings were, um, you know, were held is in large part because in the last few years, there have been so many news articles, mostly from The New York Times, about, um, you know, Pentagon programs that look at UAPs and about these unexplained videos that, um, like Scott said, are shot, you know, these are videos that show something that appears to be moving very strangely through the sky and appears to be defying some some laws of physics. And you can hear military personnel saying, you know, what is that? What's going on? Um, And so there has been a lot of hype and that has led to, I think, these congressional hearings. And then I think that that uh, public attention has kind of trickled over to to NASA. Um, it's true that NASA wants to, I think, start taking these things more seriously, but I kind of wonder if they're doing it because they felt a little bit 
left out. I think that's just my interpretation. You know, this is something that a lot of people are talking about. And if the, um, if, you know, some of the people are talking about aliens, that's kind of an, that's kind of, you know, something under NASA's purview, or at least it should be. And so I think that is part of the reason why the agency wants to get involved. You know, if, if the agency's job is to look for life beyond Earth, you know, but people are suggesting that it might be somewhere close to home, which, you know, we can talk about the possibilities of that. Um, I think NASA feels like it needs to be involved in some way. And it's important to note that this study that the agency is conducting is unfunded. You know, it's it's not going to be taxpayer funded work. So it's it's a very preliminary step. Uh, Scott, I'm wondering if you can speak about um, changing attitudes uh, culturally um, among the scientists at, at NASA and those uh, who work with NASA. I, it, it does seem like um, we, we've crossed some Rubicon where if in the past just to raise the question was considered, you know, woo-woo, uh, ridiculous, <laughs> uh, now now we're, we're willing to sort of consider the possibilities, but from from the standpoint of credible science. Yes, I would go back um, a number of years to the creation of the field of astrobiology. Uh, that happened down at NASA Ames. I was part of that. I set up NASA's Astrobiology Institute, and that was really focused on seeing any signs of life on Mars, Europa, or elsewhere in the universe. That could be microbial life, but the discoveries that there are thousands of extraterrestrial planets around other stars, many of which are in the so-called habitable zone, that is to say where water could exist, has really caused the science community to go from, well, theoretically it's possible, to, well, we've got extreme files here on Earth, organisms that live where you didn't think they could live. We've now got planets around other stars. We've got a very ambitious Mars program that's starting to see possibly the fingerprints of life. So I think there has been a shift in the science community of how they view this whole question. But do we still struggle as, you know, carbon-based uh, anthropomorphic life forms uh, to, to see what it is we think we're looking for? You know, I'm, I'm thinking, for instance, we, we know by now that, um, you know, we can't see as many colors as other creatures uh, on Earth, uh, like shrimp. Uh, we, we, that we have certain biases that, that cause us to... Um, limit what we understand uh, to be other life forms? It's a very, very good question. How would we know if we were seeing a form of life? Um, now, there was a National Academy study on life as we don't know it. I mean, could there be silicon-based life forms? Uh, one episode of Star Trek, I think. Um, and that concluded that carbon-based is probably still the most likely. But in doing that, the criteria started to emerge, and there is a major effort underway, funded by NASA, to the science community, of how would you tell you've seen really the fingerprints of life? It involves ratios of various isotopes of carbon and other things, and uh, I think that whole field of science and scientific investigation is really dramatically um, uh, expanded. And I imagine, too, and, and uh, Marina, you can jump in here if you want, you know, like, uh, we have we've had a certain kind of presumption in terms of the way we frame the conversation in decades past, presuming that that uh, some alien form of of life 
uh, would want to spend the time, the space, the effort to to contact humans and get into a conversation with us, if not, you know, attack us militarily. Um, you know, is, is it your impression, why don't we start with you, Scott, that, that uh, that's just unlikely to be the case, that we're going to have to find what we're looking for as opposed to um, find evidence of uh, some other form of life trying to contact us? Well, I would answer in two ways. One is there's something called the Fermi paradox, named after the famous physicist Enrico Fermi, who said, if the universe is so full of alien creatures, where are they? You know, what is the evidence, not just speculation, that this exists? The other thing that I'll point out is that for quite a few years, uh, NASA funded something called the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, which was serious scientists and engineers uh, listening for any sounds that might represent another technology out there. Now, that was cut off by uh, the Golden Fleece Award by a congressman maybe 25 years ago, uh, but they are funded now privately, and um, that is something where they have a set of 42 dishes up there run through the University of California that uh, is still listening for any sounds of intelligence. Well, you're listening to Forum. We are talking about NASA's Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, or UAP, study team, which doesn't expect extraterrestrial life to be the cause of most UAPs, but inspired us to check in on where the search for life outside of Earth does stand. Who are we talking with today? Scott Hubbard, former director of the NASA Ames Research Center and author of Exploring Mars, chronicles from a decade of discovery, and Marina Corrin, staff writer of The Atlantic, who covers space for the magazine. What do you think about this search for signs of intelligent life in the universe? Call us at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can, of course, email our your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. But whatever you do, stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. We're talking today about the search for signs of extraterrestrial life uh, with a couple of experts here today. Scott Hubbard, former director of NASA Ames Research Center, and Marina Corin, staff writer at the Atlantic covering space. Uh, Marina, when we left off, we were talking about, uh, you know, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll let you take in, uh, take the question now. Um why 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 presume that alien life of any kind would be trying to reach out to us it seems vanishing vanishingly small the possibility of it yeah i think because the idea of being completely alone might be a little too sad and we'd rather have a <laughs> um a more i don't know i think it's it's we're just trying to get at this really big question of are we alone or not, you know, is this the only ball of rock in in the universe where life has evolved to the extent that, you know, we're a bunch of stardust asking these questions of ourselves and of the universe around us. Um, And I think, I mean, what's most interesting to me is the kind of answers that we might get and those that we might not get. I mean, space is huge and um, the timescales there are extremely unfathomable. So, you know, if there was some other civilization that, wanted to potentially reach out to us someday maybe by that time the that message reaches us we're not here anymore right like it's it's wild to think about but these are kind of the um thought experiments that that are possible um i think what's more exciting and potentially more um feasible in the coming years and decades is finding evidence of life that is uh, not intelligent, as in not in the way that we think of life in the movie Contact, for example, the 1997 film with Jodie Foster, you know, we are much more likely to find evidence of microbial life and potentially even in our own solar system. There are a lot of cool missions already in the works. As Scott mentioned, there's a very robust um, Mars program searching for signs of fossilized life in the Martian surface. And then there are some interesting missions coming up in the future. Um, A spacecraft mission to Europa, which is an icy moon of Jupiter that might be able to give us more answers about what's happening beneath that icy crust. Potentially there could be a salty, briny ocean and oceans are fantastic, especially with the dash of salt. A lot of magic can happen there. So um, there are different ways to look for life beyond earth and there were also different things to look for. Well, I want to give out the phone number again. We are getting calls and comments, uh, but just in case uh, you missed the queue, 866 733 That's 866 733 Like potential alien life forms, we are uh, accessible by a variety of formats. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. And, of course, you can email us at forum at kqed.org. Well, with that, Bill Wright, Life on Earth began pretty quickly after it became possible, less than half a billion years, right? But multicellular life took several billion years longer, and then intelligent life another half billion or so. Conditions on the early Earth water, CO2, methane, dissolved minerals, seem like they should be pretty common on early planets, extrapolating from one data point. This suggests that planets which have or had bacteria should be common, but planets with radio transmitters much less so. Uh, Marina, any thoughts? Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Wishing I had, you know, any type of biology background. Um, 
I mean, this is kind of what I'm getting at when I'm saying that I'm very excited to have some type of discovery of microbial life, because I think that might be a more likely discovery. For example, there is a um, a moon around Saturn called Titan, and Titan is an ocean world, but it is not the kind of ocean world that we might expect living on this planet. Titan has lakes and, and rivers and small oceans made of methane. And so it's possible, I mean, this is wishful thinking because I really want to write the story if it happens, but it's possible that on Titan, there are, uh, you know, methane-based um, organisms, single-cell, maybe multicellular organisms, and they've been there for, um, you know, as long as uh, the solar system has been around, maybe for a couple billion years or longer, but uh, conditions there did not just, you know, they didn't work out so that those microbes could could transform into something else. I mean, again, we only have one data point for life right now, which is us here on Earth. So it's really difficult to predict what we might see and what kind of conditions, you know, what are the chances that the conditions that we evolved here could be happening somewhere else? It's, it's really difficult to predict. Uh, Scott, Marina was saying, you know, we, we only have one data point uh, for for life, although I, I think, Marina, you meant intelligent life that, that humans can recognize as intelligent. But, but I, a lot of people who sort of consider this question of alien life have been looking to other forms of life here on this planet uh, that simply express intelligence in different ways than we do. I'm, I'm thinking of dolphins. Ah, well, that's uh, really a big question is how do you recognize uh, intelligence and what is that? And there is a lot of adaptive behavior uh, from uh, smaller creatures up through the primates and, of course, on to us. Uh, I wanted to follow up a little bit on the comment about Mars because I've spent a good portion of my professional life uh, in that realm looking at that other body in the in the solar system. I had the chance to be the first Mars program director in uh, put the program on a track that it's been the last 20 years where the whole rationale is uh, the first among equals is are we alone did life ever evolve there and so this whole sequence of missions has been to try to find the habitable zone to try to detect these fingerprints of life and what's happening now and if all goes as planned within about a decade we will see the first samples carefully selected astrobiological samples brought back to Earth from Mars. And uh, Perseverance, the one of the rovers that's there, just collected those. And I just heard a lecture about that, and it's showing a lot of signs of organics. And uh, as was said a little while ago, you get organics, you get liquid water, you get energy. That seems to be at least a big part of the recipe for life. With that, let's go to the phones and talk to Shri in Belmont. Hi, Shri. How are you? Well, uh, so uh, the thing I wanted to comment on was just that uh, I love the idea of, of searching for alien life, and I think there's a lot of benefits in terms of technology and medical science, and you know, and all the all the um, you know, bending all our scientific efforts towards we develop so many useful technologies. Uh, but I do I do wonder about you know with Fermi's paradox. I feel like the one seemingly obvious answer is the issue of kind of ships passing in the night. You know, we've, we've been producing signals and, you know, electromagnetic spectrum for 200-odd years. You know, the planet's about 5 billion years old, 14 billion-year-old universe. And, you know, assuming we can manage to survive for, say, another 2,000 years, which 
I think it's optimistic that we don't do something to ourselves in that time period. I mean, that's such a short time frame for us to be able to be, like, say, 2,000 years of able to, you know, communicate and pretty signals that other other life forms can communicate. And if other life forms follow similar, similar trajectories, it, it's just unfortunately, I think there is that, you know, just statistically, I feel like that's, uh, that's working against us. The idea that, you know, we might just, just be off in time with other civilizations uh, in terms of able to communicate with them and find them. Shri, that's a fabulous question and, and one that a number of people who've been writing in uh, have been posing as well. I think it's it's a, a perfect question for our next guest, Dan Wertheimer, SETI chief scientist at the UC Berkeley Department of Astronomy. Uh, Dan, what do you make of this, this question of ships passing in the night? Uh, w- once again, it seems like human structural biases, we're hopeful that mm-hmm. we can find people but or people life, but, you know, maybe the life already attempted contact, maybe the life is going to attempt contact long before, you know, we've all uh, devolved into star matter. Yeah, it's a fascinating question, Rachel. Uh, thanks. I, uh, You know, we're an emerging civilization. We're just getting in the game where we might be able to figure out how to communicate with other civilizations. Uh, I, 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 because we're just learning how to do it now, I don't expect we're going to find advanced civilizations right away. But I, I, I expect the universe is teeming with life and intelligent life is going to be rarer. But there are a trillion planets in the Milky Way galaxy, you know, more planets than there are stars. A lot of them are these Goldilocks planets that have all the conditions for life. So I think it's going to happen and we should start thinking about it. The This question about where where we are compared to other civilizations, are we passing in the night, is, is an interesting one. So uh, so our star, our, our Earth is about four and a half billion years old, but some stars and planets are 10 billion years old. We're sort of middle-aged right now. So you could imagine very advanced civilizations. Uh, our star uh, is going to be around another few billion years. So if we get through these tricky years with our biological and nuclear weapons and learn how to live together in peace, we could live a long time. And maybe other civilizations have figured out how to get through these bottlenecks and learn to live together and stop killing each other. And so maybe there are civilizations that are billions of years ahead of us. Maybe we get on the galactic internet and get all their poetry and music and be talking to them. So I think even though we're an emerging civilization, there are probably a lot of civilizations that aren't kind of in that in that delicate phase. And maybe they are communicative for billions of years, even though we've only been communicative. We've only had, you know, forum for, I don't know, a decade or so. We've only had radio and television for, uh, well, television, our early television shows, I Love Lucy has gone past 10,000 stars. So we're, we're a very primitive emerging civilization. So I, I imagine uh, some life form out there might be listening to KQED Forum. If if not now, then a long, long, long time from now. Uh, what What's your uh, impression of, of this NASA study? Are, are, are they looking in the right places, in the right ways? Um, you know, uh, do you think our attention should also be turned to other organizations uh, that are, are looking for life one way or another? So uh, let's see. I'm not sure. Are you referring to... To the the, the new UAP. NASA, the yeah, UAP, the stuff. new one. Yeah. yeah, I think it's worth looking into. I don't think any of it's going to turn out to be anything like extraterrestrial. So even though I'm very optimistic about life and even advanced life, I think uh, my guess is that these UAPs—they're unidentified. You know, they're phenomena. They're some of them are aerial. 
uh, like the acronym says, but it's very unlikely that any of them have to do with extraterrestrial life. But it's still worth looking into. We don't understand exactly what all this stuff is. And that it's always good in, in science to pursue this stuff. Uh, but I think if we ever encounter other civilizations, it's not going to be through these UAP studies. I think there are, there, uh, there are better ways to go and find out this answer the question, are we alone? Is anybody out there? Uh, Scott, talk a little bit about radio technology. How, how does uh, radio help us look and, and you know, uh, explain the science, if you will, for, for somebody who uh, oh, it's been a long time since, <laughs> since their high school, uh, you know, physics class? Well, the techniques for detecting the presence of living systems around other stars involve the optical, the infrared, and indeed uh, the radio, too. Um, Dan has an organization over there that is very much involved in radio astronomy. Um, the new James Webb Space Telescope has already started to see uh, evidence of atmospheres around some of these planets around other stars that could be uh, possibly another indicator of a habitable zone, not life, but a place where life could exist. And I expect building on what Hubble did and what James Webb is going to do for another several decades, we're going to see more and more places where if life emerged, it could exist on this planet. And possibly, uh, if you see evidence of certain types of chemicals, methane, oxygen, and so forth, you can then infer that there might be a biological process. And I think this is the kind of stuff that NASA does that is so uh, encouraging, appealing, and attractive for the, the search for life. Uh, any thoughts about that, Dan? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, what Scott said. Yeah. I, you know, there, there's something... There's something beautiful and poetic and kind of lonely about this search, isn't there, Marina? It is. I think, um, I don't know what is, I'm curious to hear what your listeners would say, you know, what is scarier to them, knowing that um, there is, you know, we have made contact or someone has made contact with us and, and now what do we do with it? You know, it took however many years for the message to reach us, like, how do we send it back? Like, is that thought scarier or is the thought that it's just us and we haven't found evidence of anyone else there? Um, is that worse? You know, and I'm, I'm really curious about how the public would react someday to some type of detection. Um, when I say life, I mean all earth life. I don't just mean, you know, advanced intelligent life. So I'm, I'm, eternally curious about how the public would react to the discovery of a tiny microorganism in a Mars sample versus how they might react to some type of radio signal that astronomers have worked through really comprehensively and determined, okay, this is not just Earth interference. This is not earthly technology. This is something else. So I, I would love to cover that story whenever it happens, but I'm wondering how people would react to it and how they might interpret that news, you know, through their personal experience, through their belief systems. You know, what would be, um, how how do we take that in? Uh, these are all, yeah, provocative questions. Dan, I see you chomping at the bit. Uh, yeah, Carl Sagan 
uh, said it was profound either way. And I think what he meant by that was, uh, you know, if, if we get on the galactic Internet, we could get all their poetry, music, science, literature uh, and learn kind of what's in our future. How do they get through their bottlenecks? How, how do these civ civilizations uh, survive? Phil said it was the Phil Morrison said it was the archaeology of the future. Um, so I, this question that um, that uh, Marina raised about uh, how our civilization is going to react is a very interesting one. I think um, there were there's sort of two parts to it. There's the what if we discover microbial life on on Europa or Enceladus? These are moons of Jupiter and uh, you know that have liquid oceans and there there could be life in our own backyard. That would be v tremendous if we find life in our own backyard. That means life is everywhere. You know, if the universe is teeming, but um, so uh, I don't think that is going to profoundly shake up our universe. We've had these kind of false alarms before where people thought they had found life on rocks or Mars and a few other discoveries where people announced that they had discovered uh, microbial life and nothing bad happened. You know, the world didn't come to an end. But the, I, I think so we, we kind of don't expect that to really shake things up. Um, but what if we found intelligent life? And I think there's, there are lots of different scenarios there. Uh, so one, I think the most likely scenario is that we find some kind of artifact of their technology, like uh, maybe their their forum radio show or their television or a radar signal or a navigational beacon or or their pollution. Right. Yeah. And I I think we won't know much about their civilization. We'll know we're not alone. That'll be very exciting. But it's not going to really shake up the planet. I think even the world's religions are going to be able to deal with that. They've they've dealt with that kind of stuff before when we found out that the earth was not the center of the universe. Uh, and they, they come around and they figure out how to incorporate that into their religion and philosophy. But another scenario is imagine some sort of thing that's deliberately beamed at us. Maybe they've seen KQED Forum or listened to KQED Forum and they know something about us and they want to start up communication. That might, they want to get on the air. <laughs> We've got things to say. And then those kind of signals might be sent, what we call them anti-cryptographically, with lots of pictures and language lessons, and we'll maybe be able to decode those kind of messages. And, and we could learn a lot, and we could put that to great use, you know. Uh, so any kind of technological or scientific or sociological information can be used for good or bad. And How would you, the listener, react to news of the discovery of extraterrestrial life? How would you react to the discovery of intelligent extraterrestrial life? I guess it's a question of whether we can communicate with them or not. Whatever the case, you are listening to Forum. That's what we're talking about today. Give us a call at 866-733-6786 and join the conversation. That's 866-733-6786. We're also monitoring other forms of communication, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're at KQED uh, Forum. You are listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, and we are talking about non-human life forms, the search for them on the Earth and beyond, uh, with Scott Hubbard, former director of the NASA Ames Research Center and author of Exploring Mars, Chronicles from a Decade of Discovery, Marina Corrin, staff writer for The Atlantic Covering Space, and Dan Wertheimer, SETI chief scientist and uh, uh, with the UC Berkeley Department of Astronomy. I want to get some comments in here. David writes, I think it's incredibly hubristic to think we are alone. It's a very small-minded thing. Uh, Thing, uh, to think that other life forms will be carbon-based and require a similar environment. Brian writes, plants are conscious, microbes are conscious, organic material drifts throughout the universe. Intelligent life, there is nothing else. Another listener writes, what if intelligent life killed themselves off as we seem to be about to do? Marina, any thoughts on that? <laughs> Um, well, these are all great points. Um, and I guess I want to just be clear when I do use the word, you know, life, life beyond earth, I do mean all kinds of life. You know, I, I would love to discover on Titan, this moon of Saturn dolphins and these, you know, methane based dolphins swimming around on this moon's lake. Um, and I do think, right. We, I don't think there has been so much work done in recent years, um, around, you know, exoplanets, for example, you know, in the 1990s, before the 1990s, there was this assumption that surely other stars have uh, planets like ours does, but we didn't know until we made those discoveries. And now astronomers know of thousands of exoplanets. And so, um, you know, statistically speaking, we are definitely not alone. I think for me, the exciting question is, how are we going to get confirmation of that? And when I really want to know when and what it's going to look like. And I'm also a little bit nervous about how it's going to be received um, by the public, because, you know, going back to our discussion of UAPs and UFOs, there are a lot of, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy thinking around that and uh, distrust of the government for being secretive. You know, if some astronomers were to go out and say, we have found X and this means that there's life beyond Earth, I'm wondering how that news will be taken in our current political environment and, and, you know, some of the approaches that we've seen to science in the last few years. Um, It's not going to be a happy announcement and then everyone just believes what you say. I think it's going to be pretty tricky. So um, there are a lot of romantic ideas around the search for life, but the reality, I think, is going to be a little messier than we expect. Why don't we go back to the phones now and Peggy in Sebastopol. Hi, Peggy. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Well, uh, you asked a question about how we felt about the different possibilities. And uh, I find... The possibility that there is uh, intelligent life on another planet and also the possibility that there isn't, I find them both equally uh, mind-boggling and awe-inspiring because if there is, of course, then we are not alone and all these possibilities uh, 
opportunities, dangers, everything come up, but uh, it's very exciting to think about. But also, perhaps we have to think maybe we are the only one. And and I find that equally uh, mind-boggling, that the universe uh, has has evolved to has been designed that we are the opportunity here, and that places a great burden, I think, but on uh, on humanity. So I think both of them are are possible. I think with more discoveries, it seems more likely there is life out, out there. But I, I I find them both amazing both those possibilities. Well, thank you so much for those thoughts, Peggy. Dan, I, I guess, you know, one way or another, it, it is a humbling thought, you know, like if, if we can't find or we can't communicate with an alternative life form, uh, we're kind of thrown back on the idea that it's up, up to us to make the best of what we've got. Uh, yeah, I think Peggy put it beautifully. I, when Carl Sagan said it was profound either way, I mentioned that it's profound if we find ET and get on the galactic internet. But Peggy pointed out it's also profound the other way. What if we we can't do this now? We can't do a thorough search and you know look at a trillion stars and say, hey, we. But it, uh, I think that'll be we'll be able to do that in a hundred years. We'll be able to do a search of a lot of different stars and the planets in, uh, in our own solar system and see if there's microbial life and look for radio and radar signals and laser signals and do a much better job. And, and if we did that, uh, we might find that we are alone and that Earth, uh, that life is an incredibly precious and rare thing. And, and uh, I think that is profound. It means we better take incredibly good care of all the life on this planet. I, oh, go ahead, Scott. I agree with what Dan just said and what Peggy said, um, but the path that science is on, at least the science I'm familiar with, uh, is trying to distinguish speculation from confirmation. And the Mars program that's been underway the last 20 years has been exquisitely careful about the, having the right instruments, looking in the right places, looking for a habitable zone, not trying to directly detect life. And now these very, very carefully selected samples that are going to come back. Uh, and I think if one of those shows, you know, studied from many different perspectives, the incontrovertible um, evidence of a past life form, uh, some type of microfossil or something, I truly believe that that's fundamental, not just for the science community, but for all of humanity. Um, so the other way to look at this, I think, is through the famous Frank Drake equation. Who Frank just recently passed away, and he had this expression that was qualitative of how many galaxies there are, and how many stars there are, and how many planets there are, and the chance that a civilization would rise and fall. And putting all that together, uh, it says even if you assign very, very, very small percentages to each one of these, there are so many galaxies, planets, and so forth, the chance that life exists elsewhere is almost a certainty. What we have to do, though, is move with all of our tools as science uh, scientists from the speculation and the theorization to confirmation. And there are, there are a lot of things underway that are very exciting. Well said. With that, let's take another call, William in Napa. Hi, William. Hello. Good morning. Um, the most interesting UFO that I've ever heard of is the one that came through our solar system 
three or four years ago. It was thought to be a comet when it was first discovered by a Hawaiian astronomer, and it it uh, changed course, I believe, as it came through our solar system, which shows it had some kind of propulsion system. Are you familiar with it? Scott? Uh, I'm familiar with the report, um, and I don't share the same certainty uh, <laughs> that, that uh, you apparently do. Um, I think we need a lot more analysis of that, uh, but nevertheless, there are a couple of uh, serious people who believe that they saw definite indication of some type of propulsion or some type of direction uh, in this in this object. Um, there is uh, in the database that the national intelligence community looked at. There are a number of cases where. These objects, whatever they are, made very startling turns, uh, unexpected at very high velocities. So uh, could there be something out there? Uh, there certainly could, but I, I personally want more confirmation. Anything you want to add to that? Yeah, this, uh, yeah. this is an object called Oumuamua, and it's, a, it's an interesting rock that, that came from another solar system. So when the planets are formed, uh, there's lots of Lots of things happen, lots of rocks that are coming together to form the planets. But some of those rocks get flown out. They come, they do a nearby encounter with a, another massive body of the star, and they get flung out of our solar system or another solar system, and they're flying around through space. And these have been predicted for a long time when people learned how stars and planets form. And uh, when these new telescopes were built, we predicted that they'd find about one of these every year. And sure enough, when they turned on the telescope in Hawaii, uh, about a year later, they found Oumuamua, and now they found another uh, one uh, another year later. And we'll find a lot more of these rocks flying between. So we already know about lots of rocks flying around our solar system, but this is the first kind of interstellar visitor that's come from another solar system. And it's just a rock, but it's, it's, a, it's the first rock from another solar system. That's nice. Um, it does deviate a little bit from the orbit, but that's because it uh, has some gas trapped in there. And when it gets near the sun, the gas, uh, the gas uh, gets heated up and it works kind of like a rocket it, and so it uh, it can uh, it it doesn't follow exactly from gravity because of the gas that's shooting out but it's it's a rock but it's still an interesting rock <laughs> you, you know this gets to the point too marina that that what what we're doing here as we search for these signs of life uh, is really stretching science we're, we're we're taking all kinds of science to different levels you know the exercise as it were is worth it yeah, I mean, I'm really struck by how many different creative approaches um, people are taking. Um, earlier this year, I attended a SETI conference. Uh, this is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Um, it was a week-long event held in, you know, a pretty bland, boring-looking conference room. You know, if you walked in there, you might have thought this was, you know, the annual gathering of the dermatologist of whatever state we were in, right? Like, but it was people that were engaged in thinking creatively about how to look around them in, in the grandest sense and find something interesting. You know, there were people proposing to look for signs around exoplanets, around other stars of pollution, because, you know, if an alien astronomer were to look toward Earth, look to our direction, they might be able to spot something, some signs in the atmosphere that suggest, okay, there's some civilization here that seems to be altering their atmosphere and polluting it in that way. And so it's interesting that um, our search is informed by what we can 
understand. And, you know, maybe 60 years ago when um, astronomers were really getting into um, SETI and using radio uh, emissions to search for potential signs out there, they maybe weren't thinking so much about, hey, let's look for signs of pollution. But that's something that we are thinking about right now because it is happening on our planet. Um, so there's a lot of creativity and um, as Scott just said, you know, a lot of new instruments coming online that are going to help us uh, see more, you know, especially these interstellar rocks that are um, coming through the solar system probably all the time, but we just haven't been able to catch them before. I love that idea, Marina. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in Formina Kim. Uh, you know, here's a really interesting uh, idea that Daphne writes about. Didn't Stephen Hawking warn us about contacting extraterrestrial life and drawing them to us? Uh, <laughs> I would love to hear from from all three of you. Uh, Scott, why don't you start? I mean, there there is that that primal fear that humans have that that uh, we could reach out and discover, uh, you know, not a friend, but a threat. Yeah, this led to an incredible uh, discussion in the scientific community, particularly the, the SETI and, and related communities, about whether we should just listen or we should listen and broadcast. And what Hawking was warning about, and others have taken this point of view, is the broadcasting. Um, nevertheless, of course, with Pioneer and Voyager, we've sent plaques out there saying, hi, here's how you contact us, here's where we are. Um, but I think that the listening part enables us to uh, now, with the discoveries of the Kepler mission, we now know exactly where to point those radio telescopes to places where planets exist that are in the habitable zone. So if time went by and a civilization did emerge, I think the chances of being able to target uh, these types of listening activities has gone way up. Marina, what, what do you make of, of the fears we have about uh, what we might find if somebody did respond to our calls? Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting question. Um, I guess I'm a little bit of a pessimist, and my thinking is, oh, I mean, if, if one day, you know, we reach out and we hear back, and we'll look at that, if it isn't the consequences of our own actions, <laughs> you know, there's not much we can do, right? Like, I don't know, if you, it, it's just so interesting, right? I think the chances of, you know, being taken out by some ancient, or some alien civilization that we reached out to are extremely low, so I think it's worth broadcasting in some way. And maybe other um, civilizations are doing the same thing, just kind of putting a beacon out there and saying, hey, we're here. And I mean, I think it's already it's already too late. You know, we've sent a couple of spacecraft out into deep space carrying, you know, literally our mailing address. Right. So in some ways, um, we're already doing it. And so if something comes out of it, just kind of have to accept it. Maybe that's the most, you know, human thing of all. <laughs> Dan? Yeah, I, I disagree with Marina a little bit. I, I actually think that it is there is risk in deliberately transmitting signals. Uh, we are primitive civilization. We're just learning about our universe and what's around. And there might be civilizations out there that want to come and grind up our planet and take all our sulfur and they don't really care much about us. They think of us like ants or something. And we just don't know. So I think we should be doing uh, listening at first. Uh, the 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 what what I call SETI search for extraterrestrial intelligence that we do, and um, and learning more about what's out there, and 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 maybe 
after we learn more about our universe and our place in the universe and whether we're alone, then we could think about transmitting. But I, I think because the risks are unknown, uh, and I don't, I, I think that it is true that we are we are sending out signals. But the people that uh, want to send out these signals, they want to send out much more powerful beam signals containing lots of information to the nearby stars, and there are additional risks there. And uh, they're putting, you know, seven or eight billion people on the planet at, uh, at risk. And I don't think that a small group of, of people should do that. Ninety eight percent of scientists think this is a bad idea. And it's it's the same kind of thing as when you're doing uh, maybe you're investigating smallpox. You want to take incredibly good care. And I don't think this is the kind of decision that should be made up made by a small number of people that have access to a transmitter. We should, we sh it should be up to all of humanity and people from all different countries and, and all different walks of life, not just scientists. Uh, so, yeah, I don't, I don't think we should be transmitting. I, uh, <laughs> You're in agreement with that. You know, we, we have been uh, talking uh, to you this, this half hour about all sorts of things, but, but not about the kind of research going on at SETI at home today. And I, I'm just wondering if you can give us the whistle-stop tour, some of the more interesting uh, avenues of exploration. Yeah, so we're really grateful to the SETI at Home participants. There are millions of people all over the world that helped us hunt for radio signals from ET. We use the world's largest telescope, in, or what was the world's largest telescope uh, in Puerto Rico. It's 1,000 feet across. It holds 10 billion bowls of cornflakes. We ran it for 20 years, and these millions of people all around the world use their computers and their phones to help us analyze the data. It was the most sensitive search that Earthlings have ever done. So what we did now, the Arecibo telescope collapsed. In the last couple of years, we've been going through all that data that the volunteers, the SETI at Home volunteers, helped us analyze, finding the very best signals from the 20 years of data from the uh, and now we are looking using the, the a big telescope in China that's even bigger than Arecibo to look at our best candidates. So stay tuned. We just looked at our first best candidates a few weeks ago. Stay tuned. What a perfect way to close out. I want to thank all of our guests today. You've been hearing Dan Wertheimer, SETI's chief scientist and at the UC Berkeley Department of Astronomy. Scott Hubbard, former director of NASA Ames Research Center and author of Exploring Mars. Marina Corrin, staff writer at the Atlantic Covering Space. We've been talking about the search for extraterrestrial life. It's been fascinating. And I want to give a special shout out to KQED colleague Danielle Venton for the pitch and Grace Wan, producer for the assist. Uh, this segment was produced by Caroline Smith. I'm Rachel Myro filling in for Mina Kim. Thank you so much for joining us today on Forum. Is there life on Mars? It's on the Mary Castorchard Brow. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.